Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 2 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. This episode, we'll be discussing the importance of data visualization. Okay, let's do the launches on the 3rd of July 2019. I had a quick look today on spacetrack.org and we're up to 95 launches. I think we've had nine more since we last spoke. Generally, there were a batch of sort of research type satellites, I think from the US, all on one payload. We've had a couple of communications satellites and there's a geostationary one gone up. So yeah, there's plenty of stuff going up. Let's do the news then. I'll say the date again. <laughs> it's the 3rd of July. I often wonder about the news. I'm a little bit, what's the phrase? Is it cognitive dissonance or is it the bias of I'm looking for things that are of interest to me, whereas I really should be trying to find a broader view of the, the whole sector, as it were. Because my first news thing that I'm going to talk about is Python. And, you know, this <laughs> Python is the thing that I find just such an enabler. But I did find this rather brilliant blog post. It's called A Visual Introduction to NumPy and Data Representation. And I'm always looking for things like this that break down things that are tricky for some people to understand, especially beginners, like arrays aren't necessarily the easiest things to get your head around. This blog post gives a visual representation of lines of code. And even on the very first page, it says NumPy array uh, 123 is your data, and it displays what that looks like and what when you do the maximum, it shows you what value you get back. It is really brilliant. It's certainly one of the best things I've seen about NumPy in a long time. And there's a tiny bit right at the bottom, I'm scrolling to it now, about images. And you can apply that to satellite images and Earth observation images if, if you want to. Please, please have a look at this visual blog post. Spend 10, 15 minutes looking through it and really getting a feel for what's happening at the beauty of this is not just its visual side, and we're going to talk about data visualization uh, as well, but the beauty of this is that it kind of encouraged me to try it, even though I was pretty familiar with what these arrays do. When I give courses and stuff in Python, we, I've got a whole notebook about this, about basically slicing and, and, all, and all this kind of stuff. And I love this stuff because it helps me think about how people want to learn and how it helps me learn and stuff like that on top of that the british geological survey put out a blog post in june acknowledging now that python is the big driver in our industry you know they're doing a lot of stuff now using python and customizing workflows with it numpy is sort of ubiquitous across everything once you get the hang of that then you you get the fundamentals of pandas and that's you know it works in the same way in fact pandas is built on numpy race I get the impression you're a fan of Python. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty enthusiastic about it. Personally, I build up a series of bespoke functions, and then I just call those functions as needed. Yeah. I've almost got an Andrew Python. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got some news that really builds on something that we looked at briefly in the news last year about Cape Town running out of water, mm. approaching day zero, as they called it, and being able to look at some of the reservoirs around Cape Town using Sentinel-2. Well, it 
turns out that um, there's a, a huge water crisis at the moment in India and Chennai, which is India's sixth biggest city, is effectively running out of water, just like Cape Town had the potential to do. And there's some amazing statistics around it and some some pretty impressive imagery as well. And it's all to do with the fact that the monsoon season has been delayed. But yeah, we'll put some links in the show notes because it really is worth having a look at just how quickly the drawdown of some of these reservoirs can be seen using openly available data from from Sentinel-2. And it's not just in India where where this problem is occurring. There's another article that I saw that basically starts to show maps of baseline water stress, as well as some quite interesting surface water area plots against month for different areas. And so we've got some in India, some in Morocco, some in Iraq. And water stress is increasing and the access to, to water is, is decreasing. And there's one statistic that absolutely blew my mind, which was that India uses more groundwater than the next two biggest extractors of groundwater put together. So India is a bigger user of groundwater than both China and the US put together. This is fascinating stuff just from an environmental science point of view. Again, it's a really good example of how uh, Earth observation can be used as a as a tool set in order to collect the right types of data to carry on monitoring this. We're telling an amazing and educational story, but it's quite often we're using Earth observation for not particularly happy events. That's true. But when you look at the story of what's happening to the environment globally, it's not a particularly happy story. So, yeah, I understand your concern. Those people who are, are sharing the stories and using the data to back up their information, I think as long as they are cognizant of what's happening on the ground and write their stories in a sympathetic way and actually try to get people to change how they interact with the the environmental stories that that are being written about then i think it's good that earth observation is in such a strong position of influence i wanted to, to draw everyone's attention to a, a cool new <laughs> newsletter that robin hawks has put together called spatial awareness we'll share the link in the podcast notes at the moment we've had three issues and he's got over a thousand subscribers so brilliant work robin and it's a weekly newsletter sent out by email on a Sunday, giving you things like cool map examples. There's some jobs on it. So yeah, sign up and um, check it out. I shall do that. It looks really good. I wanted to also mention IUS training, Russ Copernicus training. It's not necessarily a news thing, but I wanted to draw people's attention to all their webinars that they've made available and they, and they do them quite frequently. And it's really good. Um, a good hour or an hour and a half of your time they've uploaded these to youtube um, the latest one they've done i think is sentinel 5p this is the stuff that when i was starting off doing my master's degree i'd have really been very grateful for in ye olden days you would have had to have either signed up to physically go to a college and be taught how to do something or you'd have to go down the library and get books out but now there are so many different places from online training areas like udemy and others like that to some of these resources like the rus putting out and yeah, it's just, it's amazing. You can very quickly get up to speed on all sorts of different topics. I think 
really shouldn't underestimate how beneficial to society at large it is having all of these these training materials out there but also understand the amount of effort that goes into creating them in the first place i was going to say this is a bit of a sad story but actually so it's about dundee download station which i don't know if you've seen Mm -hmm. but it's had its central funding withdrawn from it back in the middle of june they found out that they definitely weren't getting their funding. Now, they've got a crowdfunding campaign going on at the moment. Yeah, there's just some interesting facts that they've posted up on a Twitter post, and I'll I'll put the link in the show notes again. Things like, before there was even a UK space agency, the Dundee satellite station was capturing live real-time satellite data, and they still do that. Also, that when Apollo 13 had the problem that it did, they were one of the listening posts for NASA. I thought was quite cool. There's a whole load of different facts like that. This satellite receiving station has been up and running for over 50 years. It's definitely played a part so early on in my career. I can guarantee that probably the majority of Earth observation specialists over a certain age in the UK have directly used the Dundee satellite receiving station. But there are so many others who might not realise how much this has influenced how they get their data today. Very quickly, I guess. Google Earth Engine apps. I found this really good blog post about how to build an Earth observation app through Earth Engine. I, I thought it was a good step-by-step guide to doing it. We need more of these things, really. I mean, I, I often wonder if there's enough simple step-by-step guide to how to process or how to even start using AWS, for example. These sort of step-by-step guides are, are really useful, I think. A satellite system basically is going to survey land temperatures is currently being considered for inclusion in the Copernicus program. And the idea for this is effectively be a relatively high spatial resolution thermal sensor to help monitor water. So it links in a bit with the the story that we were talking about right, right at the beginning about India and other parts of the world being water stressed. Only this is specifically to look at how vegetation and even more specifically crops, will respond to drought. And it's a team that's being led from the UK, so King's College in London. And it looks a very exciting programme, really. The Land Surface Temperature Monitoring Mission, LSTM, is looking to try and improve the spatial resolution by 10 times as what can be currently looked at. So definitely one to keep an eye on. This is interesting. Yeah, exactly. I I think it has lots and lots of different potential applications as well. So it'd be quite cool to see if it can get up there. And I think that's probably it for the news. I think so. This episode, we want to try and get to grips a little bit with data visualization. And this is definitely a large and tricky topic to discuss. And we've got quite a few points we want to make, but it's so big that it's probably something we'll have to come back to in the future and (laughs) revisit, I would have thought. I'm really pleased because I've been itching to do a data visualization discussion with you for as long as we've been doing this, actually. All right. Okay. Data visualization is something that I feel a bit of an emotional connection to. When I see something that a beautiful image, I often feel a powerful connection to it. We are very visual beings. I love looking at maps as well, but it was probably the visual side of looking at satellite imagery that first got me into that. Being able to move really from a a representation of an area into seeing the actuality of what was on the ground, even if back then 
the spatial resolution was quite coarse. The better the sensors get, the more compelling uh, I find that the, the imagery is as well. I mean, have you ever had the thought, I know I have, of, I know what is a good business idea. I'll just sell beautiful cloud-free imagery that I've stretched or tweaked or you know enhanced in some way to the general public. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is in the business we're in, either we do see so many or we have the potential to find so many amazing images of the Earth's surface. And you just need to look at the success of some of the books that have been out there with aerial photography of the natural world. Yeah, I, I've bought them. I'm sure others would as well. I mean, there was certainly a trend where there were several books published, I've got a couple of them, of beautiful images of, yeah. of the Earth's surface. Um, I'm not so sure it's as viable a business today, especially as you can pretty much get an image of anywhere in the world yourself and print it out if that's what you want. I think all you have to do is, like any business area, you just have to diversify a bit more. I've seen carpet tiles from, from Google Earth imagery, or I'm assuming digital globe imagery. And similarly, you can get wallpaper that is uh, map information. Certainly <laughs> over here, you can get ordnance survey wallpaper and that sort of thing. I've seen cars that have high resolution resolution aerial photography wrapped around them that is that's niche though isn't it you're talking you're talking super niche aren't you it's moving from doing relatively cheap bulk posters out to everyone to going high end and charging a lot of money the question that always comes back to me is what are the license rights for wrapping your car up in a digital globe image i mean i am getting this image now of your house water ceiling <laughs> carpet tiles satellite imagery everywhere I know you like it, but I didn't realise you like it that much. <laughs> and everybody gets a, a hat shaped like a satellite to wear. As well. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Bahrain once and uh, they've got a huge digital globe floor of, of the museum of the island and you can sort of walk around the island. That's cool. Work nicely for them on the on the, on the right scale. And, you know, it, it, it soon got out of date as a lot of, a lot of these things are in the Middle East and sort of all of the, the development that's going on. But that was quite nice and it was... Uh, a kind of interactive exhibit without being in an exhibit. I saw something on the web the other day that was augmented reality. It was projected into a corridor in an office block. It wasn't augmented reality where you had to look through your phone or whatever. And it was just of the sea lapping up onto the foreshore. But they'd projected it in such a way that the sea came out from underneath the wall of the corridor and then just lapped across the corridor floor. There were two things that were really interesting. One, it was mesmerizing. And the second one was that people were actually moving to the other side of the corridor thinking that it was actual waves and water. Wow. It made me think that actually, if they can do that with that type of thing, then maybe we can start to have interactive displays and visualizations based on satellite data. So you were talking about Bahrain and how it was a fixed point in time. I don't have an Instagram account but there is an earth from satellite instagram account and they get a huge number of likes people like satellite images yeah yeah when i was at university we did a we did several modules and one of the modules was visualization of gis data and there was always this problem or idea of are we cartographers or are we data people yeah, now that is an interesting point, and I don't know if I'm breaking into your train of thought on this, but everybody has an opinion about what a visualization should look like, mm. be it the size of the font or whether or not it's got drop shadows or not 
whether or not it's a certain color, whether the lines are a certain thickness, whether it's in false color composite or whether it's in true color composite. It's not just an expectation that the GIS person will come up with a visualization. Everybody weighs in with a thought about how it should be visualized. One of the things I really wanted to mention was the dawn of new technology and how that has impacted. And I'm talking about things like Tableau, which instantly got purchased by Salesforce in between our last podcasts. That's an interesting acquisition, isn't it? And D3.js and Observable. Especially with Tableau, when I first came across it, it was kind of giving people who were good with manipulating Excel sheets the ability to plot data in a map and the visualization side of it was perhaps stronger than the understanding of cartography okay so we sort of touched on the fact that geospatial visualization in the past has tended to be map based and even now i mean if you put together a portal for something that's earth observation database usually there's a map on there so you can click on a location But do you think that all geospatial visualization should be map-based? Or do you think we can start to pull out from our spatial data more interesting ways of visualizing data? So I'm using as my example the climate animations that Ed Hawkins has done down at the University of Reading. And they've been widely shared. And there's a whole raft of different animations, all of them showing how the global temperatures have increased I think it's universally accepted that those are incredibly powerful visualizations of the data. And I would say much more powerful than the underlying spatial data. Although in the underlying spatial data, you'll be able to look at regional and local trends as well. What sort of thoughts do you have there? I'm really enjoying this topic as a discussion because while I think we have broad agreement, I think we see the visualization of data slightly differently. Right. I think we need to slightly move beyond This is a beautiful satellite image. You can't look at all these images that are coming down now. It's just impossible. So we have to process them in in a certain way. So instead of saying we've got 100 images of this area and it's flooded 20 times, disseminate that down to some graphic that shows you over time, is that increasing, decreasing? Is it fluctuating in some way? Are you saying that animation of the flood is less important than the information that you extract and that you visualize in, say, an infographic or something like that? I think so, yes. Okay, cool. How do you feel about that? I'm surprised that you thought that because I was assuming that we would both be saying that spatially plotted data would be the most important thing, just based on our backgrounds. To be honest, I can see the value of both. And I know that's such a cop out. I still have a slight issue with abstracting the information so far from the base data that you just present some numbers or a traffic light type of diagram. But the number of times that I've presented an end result, and then the user has said, oh, can I just see the satellite imagery that went into that? And then we have a totally different conversation. (sighs) I fully understand that lots of people just want the number and that's the answer. But I feel that we're doing them a disservice by not also making available, either through a click or through an appendix in a report or whatever, the visualization of the spatial data at the same time. You know, you you were talking about Ed Hawkins and while while you were talking, I was looking at this Show Your Stripes campaign that's going on at the moment about global temperature change. And you can go to the showyourstripes.info page and pick where you are. And these aren't numbers that I can see. These are just strips of colour and the 
progression is generally from a blue to uh, increasingly hot red. <laughs> I know it's temperature data, so I'm kind of subconsciously processing it. And I'm saying it's cooler to warmer. You're right. Looking at this, there's nothing to tell you what the scale is. There's no y-axis. It is literally just a series of stripes, but it is instantly obvious what it's trying to show. I mean, something like this is in incredibly powerful. Keep it simple. And sometimes it has more impact than something that's really complex. That to me is the crux of a good visualization. I talked about the sort of emotional thing at the start, didn't I? Bad visualization, you get an emotional response this airline had a map of their routes and their company's colors are an orangey color and a blue color okay for some reason they decided to put a route map up with the sea in yellow and the land in blue <laughs> what <laughs> right exactly so they only had two colors their corporate colors are blue ah. and a kind of orangey yellow color right oh that's just nuts why who would <laughs> why would you put land as blue so that sort of brings me on to another issue that i think we should briefly touch on then which is the issue of color so on the gis side of things i know that there's the color brewer palettes that are available for theming up some of your vector data now i'm not aware of any work that's been done in terms of making color palettes available for raster data now i might be wrong here in fact i'm probably am wrong but i'm not aware of any color palettes that have been produced in order to make either satellite imagery or modeled raster data accessible in in terms of issues around colorblindness or just making them really obvious. I was just wondering if you were aware of anything that's been done in terms of specific color palettes for EO data. You did hit on a couple of interesting points there, which is one, colorblindness. I hardly have ever thought about that with satellite imagery. So I think that would be very interesting to talk to someone with colorblindness. Yeah, I, I worked with someone who was red-green colorblind, and they were involved in analysis of satellite imagery. And I'm just wondering whether or not there are specific palettes that would have been more useful to help them and the non-colorblind people make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. Interesting. Going back to the, your point about standard palettes of satellite imagery, the thing is that every image is pretty much unique. This is why, I mean, I've always sort of felt that the base maps that companies like EOX... The cloudless Sentinel. Yeah, that is a phenomenal image because of the challenges involved. If I said to you, can you knock me that up this weekend? Do you think you could? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you're too busy editing a podcast. <laughs> These base maps not only have a lot of data, but they have a lot of finesse. This raises another question, and this is a data processing question, but it leads to the visualization. So we would traditionally use some form of atmospheric correction software and some form of cloud removal software. Now, there are defined ways that those work, and that's all based on physics. In order to process the vast amounts of data that are needed to go into something like the cloudless product or into, I think it's also the a base map for Mapbox, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then some of the methods employed are there in order to make the nicest image. 
So I suppose they're trying to do two different things and one isn't inherently better than the other. But I was just interested what you think about the fact that there's this new sort of approach, this new way of thinking about Earth observation data that takes it away from maybe some of the physics and more towards data in a computer science slash data science type of mindset. Mm, I think these base maps are an interesting point because sometimes they're using the median pixel or... I think I saw a blog post once by Matt Box. They get the best pixel. It seems to me that a lot of effort has gone into these base maps to avoid the join, and that takes some skill. This comes back to the point you made right at the beginning of the discussion about, so these are beautiful images. I mean, I don't think anyone can really say that they're not. I mean, they are there in order to look amazing and to act as base maps yeah we haven't really even discussed things like you know, interactive web mapping and stuff like that and you know making things so desirable that you want to click on them and, and having a pleasing interaction with them but, you know sometimes it's the simplest things like those stripes that yeah. cause you to really connect with it these worlds of earth data science or data science and visualization are slowly migrating towards each other, I think. Yeah, this has been a really interesting discussion. Like you, I want to come back to this and, and have another episode, I think, to, to try and look at some of the other things that we haven't mentioned. If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Matt underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Oh, as a quick aside as well, I'm also thinking of putting together a Strava groups. Get in touch through Twitter and let us know that you'd like to see that as well. Thanks for listening. And that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Cheery, bye. Bye. You don't have Strava? Can I send you a little hand draw Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.